Our scripture reading for this week comes from Psalm chapter 129, and that can be found on page 442 of your Pew Bible. Again, that's Psalm 129, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. With it, the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord indeed. Good morning, congregation. Isn't it fun to hear Simone uh, make her little noises during confession and during prayer? It's almost like she's like, yes, give me Jesus. I'm like, girl, you have not been baptized yet. Just wait, just wait. Today we are talking about perseverance. Perseverance. Now this week, uh, my wife Lissy and I we found ourselves craving an action-packed movie. Um, and so we settled on the latest Top Gun installment. Any, any fans? So as, as the story goes, Maverick, he's um, a, a Navy fighter pilot. He, um, he is both, uh, I mean, very perseverant. Um, his unmatched skills, he's very defiant of orders as well. Um, he's demoted to the place of a teacher. Um, and despite the setbacks, he rises to the challenge of preparing a new generation um, for a critical mission. Um, and, and I would say that this embodies something about perseverance, right? The, the fighting spirit in perseverance, an unwavering determination to overcome whatever obstacle or adversity stands in your way, no matter the odds. Now, this, the, this, this movie, thinking about themes, um, made me think of other iconic movie moments. Um, Lord of the Rings is something that always comes to mind. Samwise carrying Frodo up Mount Doom at the end. Think about Rocky, his triumphant training montages. Um, I think about 127 hours. Any, any fans of that movie? The mountaineer gets stuck in a rock. He has to really demonstrates something almost inhuman in how dogged his perseverance is. And then I thought of Beyond Earth. I thought of a movie Gravity, which, you know, most of it is silent. Um, Lissy and I saw that in theaters. Um, that is one thing I thought of. I also thought of superhero movies and how they they managed to capture the essence of good and evil and that battle and that perseverance and that hope, that sort of resilient last-stitch effort to, to fight in a, in a way that maybe other movies don't. Um, it's all over our films. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about perseverance and I was thinking about 
how it's not just limited to Hollywood movies. Actually, there's a real-life trait to perseverance in our own congregation.、Um, I mean, Lissy's going to blush. She usually listens to my sermons, but she's not. She didn't listen to this one. But, but honestly, artists toil long and hard because the art world is so competitive. I mean, I've seen Lissy late nights cutting paper. I mean, stealing a minute when she puts Simone down to do her artwork. I mean, despite facing countless rejections and setbacks, I mean, artists pour their heart into their work, and the future is unknown. It is a life of perseverance. All of us have lived through the height of the COVID pandemic, 19 pandemic, and, and whether healthcare workers or, or people in the education sector, I mean, pivot, 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 forward, forward, forward. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Despite the physical toll, I mean, there was a call to to be present and compassionate to students,、um, to patients. If you're a teacher, a, we have a a special education、um, teacher's aide in in our congregation. We have physical therapists, we have nurses, we have mental health workers, we have people that show the true spirit of. Perseverance in their work. You know, I think this fighting spirit, this determination, this courage.、Um, I mean, one of the reasons it resonates so deeply with me is because our faith calls us to have perseverance,、um, to be perseverant people of God. Our faith journeys require us to have a dogged, resolute, forward-looking courage. In an online blog post, I read、um, the experience of one missionary and how it taught them the the him his him and his family the the meaning of perseverance on the mission field.、Um, they faced challenges such as praying countless nights without immediate answers, without responses from the the people around them,、um, sharing their faith countless times with little impact, and and underneath. That, I mean, when months become years, questioning their motives and feeling a sense of disorientation in all of it. The the author of the blog post reflected on how, throughout the missionary journey, he and his family had to come back to, not not their actions in it, but God's actions to him and his family, not his righteousness, but changing focus, right. Not to what I can do, but what God's done for me, and that's really the thing that kept this missionary persevering, despite obstacles, despite setbacks, despite doubt. Now we find a similar thread of perseverance throughout our Old Testament, throughout our New Testament. These stories that have shaped our lives, and we come. Through the trials of Job and Abraham, we we come through the endurance of Israelites, the Israelites in their early years. We come through the pages of Scripture to, I mean, the life of Israel in a very challenging time. The path of faith is not always smooth. We learn that from the life of the Israelites. But those very real challenges can grow our faith and make us stronger, make us more resilient. 
And that's part of God's plan for us, to be persevering people. Perseverance, the ultimate pathway to hope as we learn in the New Testament. Now, one of the things I want us to take away this morning is that we're going to find ourselves in moments that require perseverance through doubt and uncertainty, setbacks. And what we draw on is the strength that comes from the steadfastness of God, who is persevering with us. The call to persevere is a call to lean into our faith, to stand firm in adversity, and to trust that God has seen his people through all sorts of trials in the past, and he continues to guide and sustain us on our journey of faith today. We talk about discipleship as a long road in the same direction, and who is it that sustains us, that gives us the strength to persevere? Well, let's take a closer look at Psalm 129, how perseverance is not only a virtue we witness in Hollywood movies, but from our community. And also, it's so important. It's vital to our, our spiritual walk. Now, now, before I jump in, I want to propose a quick survey. Um, who here likes to know a sermon's outline off the outset? Show of hands. Um, who here prefers to just experience the sermon as it goes? Meh. These are questions preachers ask and people probably care about. I have a theory that, that kind of tracking along allows us to not intellectualize as easily, to not see it as an academic exercise to learn the three points. Um, either way, I'm going to tell you the three points, um, whether or not this, this throws you off in, in that heart journey. I'm going to do it anyway. Point number one, we persevere with God. Point number two, God perseveres with us. Point number three, Christ perseveres for us. Now, within this structure, I'm going to go further and spell out the three promises that God made to Abraham. Can anyone tell me what they are? Those three covenantal promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, reiterated in Genesis 15. The promises of land, seed, and blessing. Go back to Genesis 15. You'll see it there in the pages. Land, seed, and blessing. Those are the three parts of what God promises to Abraham, the father of our faith. Those are the three pillars of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And you see that throughout Scripture. You see it throughout our psalm as well. All right, so point number one. We persevere with God. Now, you may be thinking that I phrased this ambiguously, um, almost to leave room for the idea that we have to put up with God. And you're right, um, though that's not my primary objective here. I, I, I kept it ambiguous. Um, a few things about this text from the outset. So broadly speaking, Psalm 129 is a celebration of God's victory on behalf of Israel, in spite of some rough treatment, some near defeat at the hand of an enemy. We don't know which enemy, but we see this in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. All right? Uh, he's cut me free. It's in a perfect tense. 
is indicating completed action. It's in the past, it's done, I'm free. Now, it's possible this song was written and sung um, on the other side of some great oppression, as in, it's in the past, we'll sing about it as a memory. But it's also possible that this song was sung in captivity to speak prophetically, covenantally. Um, and if this was written during exile, as many suspect it was, those in Babylonian ca captivity had words of hope from the prophets to shape their expectations. Jeremiah, for example, proclaimed that God was caring for the land of Israel for 70 years because Israel had neglected it. He calculated the number of years that the land was not given a jubilee rest, and once it had its rest, the, the Israelites would return home. Now, now that sense of, is this written after the conflict or during the conflict? I, I, this likely, uh, it being written during the conflict, during the captivity, likely better captures some of the time aspects of this. Now, verses one and two, they've greatly oppressed me. Those, those are um, perfect, cal perfect tenses. Literally, just they oppressed me. It's perfect action. But, but then we turn to verses five to eight. And what do we make of that? Because it's future tense, right? It's saying, may this happen to them. May those who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they wither like grass. May, uh, may they not be blessed. And may no one confuse them as being blessed. I mean, this is a future tense. And so I wonder if it makes sense to think about this psalm written from the perspective of somebody calling on the covenant and calling on God to act. Now, the time of writing is largely speculative. Um, but something is l l less speculative, and that's the subject of this. This, is a, a, this has to do with war, right? And it, having just read that, you're probably thinking, war? How, where, does that, where do you get that, Kyle? Now, we've been misled uh, slightly to smooth over verse 3 because Jesus talks about the metaphor of a yoke in a positive sense. Um, perhaps the plowing metaphor makes us think of manual labor. Um, some people would read this and think of forced labor, as in a human is being made to take the place of an ox, an animal drawing a plow. I mean, perhaps we can go further with this image of, of cruel slavery. Imagine gashes on the back of slaves. But this interpretation is challenged by one thing, and that's that the word yoke is actually never mentioned in this psalm. Additionally, a plow and a yoke, they represent different forms of oppression. The yoke signifies forced labor, right? You imagine a person taking the place of an animal. But, but plowmen have plowed my back. I mean, this signifies physical injury, harm through abrasion. Now, they've greatly oppressed me from my youth. That word oppressed is a, is a significant one. It's sometimes translated harass, but every time it is used in a narrative portion of scripture, it is used with a military context. And verses four, verse four, 
cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Now, now that word, cut me free, can also be translated prevail or gain victory. And actually, it, it is elsewhere in Scripture in the context of military victory. Now, from the, the Old Testament conquest, the commands to, we, we get these commands to harass or oppress the Midianites. That's a, that's a military context. We have the imagery of mountains being pulled down in I, Isaiah when we think about, when we're, we're learning about God's response to those who put Israel in captivity. These are the language of warfare. And the verb plowing in verse 3 is used elsewhere in Scripture and always in reference to Babylonian captivity in, in the Old Testament. So Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will be a heap of ruins. Virtually all the major prophets looking forward and back to the devastation of Assyria and Babylon use this metaphor. And here I'm going to give a trigger warning. And also I am, I'm going to say this in as age-sensitive of a way as I can. The metaphor paints the depth of in injury suffered in verse 3 using the analogy of sexual violence. The, the metaphor being used describes the siege of war on the land. The victim's body is a field bearing the furrows of violence. And I think now... now I may, I may, some people may track with me on this, but I, I think ecofeminists would understand this metaphor implicitly. The ideologically gendering our, our understanding of a military encounter where victory is associated with masculinity and, de and, and defeat with femininity. Um, as in, what does, though should never happen to a woman, is... is likened to what did but should never happen to a land under God's blessing. I mean, during war, crops are burned to limit supply chains and control enemy movement, but the injury to the land was more devastating than the crops burned. I mean, war inflicts profound devastation on a nation's economy. It shatters industries, it disrupts trade, it, it, it diverts resources, and beyond the economic toll, it, it, war fractures a nation's identity. It dis destroys cultural heritage. It sows division among communities. And the, and, and, and the psychological scars of loss, of shared uh, security, and the normalcy of, of the deep impact on the nation's collective identity, right, they leave a lasting legacy of trauma, right? social, communal trauma. When we say we persevere with God, there's a sense in which all three of the covenantal categories, land, seed, and blessing, are being called into question with holy protest. Because where is the blessing? Where is the seed? Where is the land? I mean, this, we have the picture of an, a land besieged. We have the picture of alien seed being planted. We have picture of, of um, a question of blessing at the end. I mean, the psalmist wanted to know, God, where is the covenant? Where are we in the covenant? And in terms of our faith, I think we can understand 
that this is a critical moment of perseverance for us. When we don't sense God around us, and God promised to always be with us, but when we don't sense it, it requires us to persevere. When we don't sense the blessing, when we don't sense, I mean, the people of God, when we don't sense God's promises fulfilled, there's a sense in which we feel the need to persevere with God. Now, if it's true, and you may be wondering if it's true, but if it is true that we persevere with God, I mean, how true is it that God perseveres with us? I mean, God is long-suffering and patient. God is steadfast, amen? God is steadfast with you, amen? God is steadfast with me, and I'll say amen. And Psalm 129 demonstrates that God perseveres through adversity and triumph. Um, I mean, despite the, the suffering faced by the psalmist, I mean, the, the psalm looks forward to a time where we can say, the Lord is righteous, he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. In perfect tense, it's completed action, God has done this. The image of God cutting cords of the wicked and intervening against oppression, it, it shows God as determined to deliver and protect. It shows God remaining steadfast in face of what doesn't feel right or fair. But perhaps hear this. The fact that the psalmist assumed continuity of God's covenant promises is bold. That God promised land, seed, and blessing would continue, I mean, despite Israel's sins, that is a bold presumption. Israel's Babylonian exile, we learn in scripture, was not the consequence of God removing his blessing for no reason, it's the consequence of disobedience and violation of their covenant with God, the sins of idolatry, turning away from God's commandments, practicing social injustice. I mean, the prophets repeatedly warned Israel to return, turn back, come back, come back to the way of God, and Israel persisted in their unfaithfulness. I mean, as a result, God allowed the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem and used it not just as a divine punishment, but as a divine corrective. I mean, in agricultural terms, right, the 70 years of exile was the exact number of years that, that there were of Sabbath where there, every, so every, every, um, every, I think it was 49 years, so seven sevens, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. I mean, the exact number of Sabbaths of Jubilee years, there would have been from Saul to the Babylonian captivity. I mean, that is every year of the monarchy that God is saying they're responsible to pay back the land. And I see Maggie Niehaus doing the math, and am I wrong? <laughs> when we think about the persistence of evil, we can, I mean, think about its long shadow. Um, and, and the way that even in our day and age, we can sometimes overlook the persistence of evil. I mean, think about racial inequality. Um, 1967, protests in the civil rights movement led pr the president at the time, Lyndon Johnson, to establish the Kerner Commission, 
which aimed to address racial inequalities. And they, they highlighted segregation, poverty, system, uh, systematic racism, which were causing destructive environments in African-American communities around the country. We can say that there have been advancements, um, but there is a huge income gap between black and white workers that's stayed the same. There's huge disparities in home ownership, which are driven by historical racist policies. The fact that there are still these things after 55 years of continued effort, doesn't that show that evil persists? We can underestimate our own <laughs> perseverance, our own steadfastness, but God is steadfast. He shows himself faithful. We learn in verse 4 that God's victorious. We also see in the end of the poem three wishes, three prayers, three hopes seemingly unfulfilled at the time. For land, right, verse 5, may all who hate Zion, Zion, land, may they be like grass on a roof which withers before it can grow. Seed, right? Um, may they never say the May people never say of them, the blessing of the Lord is upon you. Blessing. So, so there are the tripartite covenantal echoes in this psalm, which Israel is saying, we are your people. Let those not be said of those who would forsake you, who do not trust you, who do not follow you. Now, Before I talk about imprecatory psalms in general, I want to spend a second talking about this word hate in scripture. Because I, I, I actually looked into it a little bit this week. Um, I found out some interesting things. So I think that the word hate is best understood when you take the, the language and trace it back to its earliest origin, which is using pictographic letters. Um, so the letter sheen, which is the first letter, I mean, it's, it almost looks like a W, kind of a curved W. At the time, it was more of like a jagged W, which was a picture of teeth, right? To eat or devour, to destroy, to consume. So noon was, was the second letter, almost like a little, so it, it, it almost looks like that, right? But in early pictographics, it, it's more of like a, a curve, which was a fish or food, or um, I mean, even a, a seed, right? Uh, the, this this idea of the continuity of life, of offspring, this um, yeah, this this activity that leads to the continuation of life. And the last letter, Alec, Aleph, um, in the earliest pictographic, looked as an ox. So it represented strong, power, even master, even leadership. Now you take these three things together, this image of teeth, this image of a seed, and this image of an ox, and let's, let's keep those in our mind, but let's consider that the first time they appear in Scripture is in Rebecca's blessing in Genesis 24. 
So when they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So you see this, this battle, <laughs> almost image, between life, ongoing progeny, and, and death. Right? The force of hate is undone by the force of life or this force of progeny. So devour life strongly. I think that's something that made the Old Testament concept of hate click in a different way in my brain this week. I don't know if that's helpful for anybody. But when you think about it that, uh, that way, the, the imprecatory nature of the last four verses of this psalm sink a little differently, right? In this sense, to hate Zion is to be at war with Israel, right? To, to have their fierce teeth devouring the seed before it can grow. To be at war with life itself, with the continuation of Israel. And in that sense, I mean, how can you not revolt against that in imprecation? To say, right, that this is really what it's saying, let the nations and their, their instigation of war with us, let it come to nothing. May we continue. And using this, this agricultural metaphor, um, um, like grass, may they initially take root, but dry out. Let no one mistakenly think God is on the side of the oppressor. This, this fertilization, um, I think that there's a subversion of the intention of the oppressors and the purpose of God mirrored in the first and second half of this psalm. So while the, the seed, would, the alien seed, would come to, into the, the heritage of Israel, God subverts that seed like a grass that quickly withers. In terms of land, seed, and blessing, God has this plan. The alien seed will not prevail. You will not rest in captivity while your land becomes overrun. You will experience the blessing again. And I think that that's at the heart of this psalm is this promise, this, this taste of God's covenant restored. And we can see that this side of the cross, God's blessing comes to us through Christ, who fulfills the covenantal hopes of land, seed, and blessing. So we've, we've gone through our perseverance with God, which we overestimate, God's perseverance with us, which we underestimate, and God's perseverance for us, which we so need. Christ's intercession, I, I, I think of it a little bit like the perseverance of Marie Curie. Now, Madame Marie Curie, along with her physicist husband, they toiled tirelessly in, I mean, impoverished conditions, dilapidated and abandoned shed <laughs> is, is how the earliest tales tell. They, they were devoid of funds. They, were, uh, they didn't have outside support. They were working with um, extracted radium from low-grade uranium. Now, now, despite, hear this, 487 consecutive failed experiments and her husband's disillusionment with it all, he said it would never be done, maybe in 100 years, but never in my day. So Marie, uh, Marie Curie, she, she had unwavering determination. If it takes 100 years, it will be regrettable, but I will not halt my efforts for as long as I live. 
And ultimately, her tenacity paid off. I mean, leading to success in the preservation, and her perseverance led to, I mean, significantly benefiting cancer patients. I mean, Christ's perseverance for us is a testament to God's unyielding love and commitment. I mean, from his incarnation, he embraced humanity's struggle. In a ministry marked by resilience and in the face of rejection, Christ dedicated himself to the task. We do literally sing a song in this church sometimes called Jesus is my superhero. His ultimate act of perseverance was enduring the cross, bearing our sins, the consequences of death, and rising to resurrection. He continues to intercede for us and he promises to return, show, showcasing an unwavering commitment to maybe what we can call the human project, our redemption and eternal well-being. Christ's perseverance exemplifies sacrificial love and steadfastness for fulfilling God's plan for us. The passion of patience, it's been called. Now, Christ fulfills these three covenantal hopes for land, seed, and blessing. Christ is the ultimate seed, the heir of Abraham, the one who brings spiritual offspring into the nation of Israel through union with himself, through faith. It's because Christ, we can say that the alien seed of evil does not take root in the kingdom, and the future is one where goodness takes root deep roots, like the thick native grasses that go down feet rather than just inches. Blessing finds its culmination in Christ's redemptive work. Through his sacrifice, believers find forgiveness, reconciliation with God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's because of Christ that we can confidently place the Lord's blessing on those unified in Christ. We can take these words, which I'll do at the end of the service, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. We can take those words and own them because Christ is the fulfillment. And we, we have union through Christ, through faith in Christ. The promised land expands in New Testament theology to include all believers as heirs to God's kingdom, transcending physical boundaries, right? In Christ, the covenantal promises are fulfilled on a higher spiritual plane where we can say that all, all believers are united across time and space in a new covenant rooted in grace and faith, right? It's because of Christ that we can uplift Zion as the spiritual mountain that one day, and even today, worshipers of God will uh, approach in spirited and in truth and in boldness even. So I don't know if it helped having, having that outline. Our perseverance, God's perseverance, Christ's perseverance for us. But as we conclude, the theme of perseverance, I'm going to re reiterate, it doesn't just resonate in Hollywood movies. I think it resonates in the faith of those around us. Look around and you will see one resilient people who's strong alone but stronger together and upheld in Christ. I'll get cheesy for a moment. Just as Maverick's unwavering determination inspired me this week, I mean, so do the, the stories of perseverance in this congregation. The story of faith 
or the journey of faith requires perseverance. It will require perseverance. When we face doubt, when we face setbacks, when we face adversity from, from both fellow believers, um, from the world around us, but we can find solace knowing that God's steadfast love endures, never lets go. It's, in, it's demonstrated through, through the enduring commitment of his covenant, through Jesus Christ, Christ's ultimate act of perseverance through his sacrificial death and resurrection brings us hope and redemption. So let's hold on to that faith. Let's lean into God's faithfulness rather than our own and continue to persevere in him as we navigate the challenges of life because Jesus Christ perseveres for you. And so that gives us strength to persevere. Let's pray. Um, Father, I thank you that um, we are a people who have a history in you. We have a long story where you have been faithful. We didn't wake up this morning and decide to just insert ourselves into, into a narrative where we didn't belong. Knowing Christ, we are adopted as your children. I mean, into an eternal family that has deep purpose and meaning. I pray that we would persevere. I pray that you would strengthen the hearts of each of us today, that we would know that you are for us and that Christ's steadfast love, his steadfast actions stand for us. Everything we could want, everything you've promised us, you give us in Christ. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.